ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we're joined by Bridget Williams, who happens to be the fiance of Misha, the producer of the Walk Show. Uh, but she's also a very accomplished person in her field of study, um, which I won't even try and explain in this introduction. She does a great job of that <laughs> in the show. But yeah, we talk about her PhD that she's working on. We talk about uh, her involvement with with dogs. She does some really cool dog training type of stuff and just have a really fun conversation. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, as always, today's show is produced in the music by Misha Zarens. Thanks again for listening. Hey, what's up, Bridget? Welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty well. Uh, did you do anything fun over the weekend at all? Uh, no. I mean, well, <laughs> I, <laughs> I've i been having fun, but it would it would sound super lame to everybody else. Like, I just, I've been, like, I'm up to my eyeballs and data right now because I've got a, a conference at the end of the month. So I'm, I'm working to analyze a bunch of data and, and I have ridiculous uh, standards as to what I want to get done. So that I, that's all I've been doing. <laughs> that's my life. Wow. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to, to do this show then uh, oh, in the yeah, midst of yeah. all that. That's yeah. nice of you. Um, well, so uh, we've got a whole bunch of different stuff that we can talk about, obviously, but we can, we can kind of start there since you kind of brought that up. Um, so currently you're working on your PhD, right? Yes. Yeah. And what field of study? Is that the appropriate way to ask that? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, I'm getting my PhD in uh, biology. Uh, my focus is in plant conservation genetics. Um, that's that's the kind of the the subject area under the broader umbrella of biology that my work falls into. Um, and specifically, I'm working. I'm I'm using epigenomics, um, and I'm looking at something known as plasticity which is basically the ability of a single individual, one organism, to respond to its environment without requiring uh, genetically-based adaptation. I feel like I need to take notes while you talk so that I can ask (laughs) follow-up questions. (laughs) Uh, We're going to rewind it just slightly. So just so I've known Bridget for a long time and um, obviously working on your PhD, this is something you've been pursuing for, for some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience with biology was I took one semester at a community college and it was online and I mm-hmm. cheated by <laughs> pulling up the tests at home and then simultaneously just doing a word search for the keywords and the questions and then just getting through it that way. Um, I, mean, I feel that's like that all might I'm not doing, have right? carried me. Okay, yeah. that is what you're still doing. Okay. Yeah, it's just a bunch Glad of Google and you yeah. know, just copying <laughs> other people. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's Spartnotes.com, it. You, right? Still yes, a yeah. Huge winner. Yeah, yeah. Good deal. <laughs> um, okay. Well, probably most of the listening audience is also more intelligent than I am, such as yourself. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'm gonna so I'm gonna ask some questions. <laughs> um, just to try and understand all of that a little better. So mm-hmm. so to kind of back up, well, actually, I won't do that yet. So to to follow up to what your explanation was, um, you said you said a word that started with, with ep, epa. Yeah, epigenomics. What's that? Yeah, what's that? 
So epigenomics um, or the epigenome. So there's the genome, which is the um, you know DNA sequence mm-hmm. made mm-hmm. up of all the little bases, the A's, C's, T's, and G's that everybody knows codes for our genes, um, and that's what kind of makes up all organisms. And the epigenome just essentially means on top of that. So it's a system of chemical, a non-genetic system of chemical modifications to DNA and uh, DNA-associating proteins. And it's mediated by RNA, um, a specific type of RNA that are really, really small. Um, And so these little RNAs basically identify different areas of the DNA that need certain chemical modifications in order to express um, the genome differently in response to the environment. So basically, if you want the plant to have a different characteristic of some sort... Yeah, and that, maybe I not. Mean, maybe, maybe not that's, a, a different yeah. characteristic altogether. <laughs> but I, I, it can do that. It can do some really, okay. really funky things. But it can also just kind of uh, modify characteristics um, so that it might be. It might so those characteristics might be better suited to the current environmental conditions that will allow um, individuals or organisms to, you know, persist through the environmental changes. So it sounds, and again, you'll just have to correct me and get sick of doing that as we go through, I think. <laughs> um, but it sounds like what you're kind of talking about is, is it kind of in some way related to like what people commonly know as like GMO type stuff? And, and I don't mean that in the politically charged sense, but just yeah. literally genetically modified stuff. Is that the same uh, kind of thing? Not really. So, okay. Because it's so the epigenome doesn't modify the genome per se; okay. it modifies expression of the genome. Okay. So it's um so we're like if if a if an individual or not an individual if a, if a population is going to adapt, then that requires genetic mutations or genetic variation in that population, so that natural selection can um, act on the presence or the expression of those genomes. And that, that's kind of what drives adaptation in populations. Um, the epigenome doesn't, um, it's, it's not actually changing the, the heritable um, nucleotide basis of the traits. So it's instead, it's kind of modifying the traits and characteristics of the plant um, not superficially necessarily. I mean, mm. it, it is. It it can be reversed. I was just going to compare it to a haircut, so I'm glad that you said that. <laughs> um. Well, let me think about that. I mean, it it's not not like a haircut, I guess. It's <laughs> <laughs> this is the most undignified conversation you will ever have about this. That's just not so, true. You don't know scientists so... <laughs> very well if you think we're dignified. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, because I was thinking you still have hair, right. but it changes, your, you know, like if I sweep it over my brow, now I'm emo. You know, I've changed yeah. my expression. Yeah, nailed so. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me give you an example. So one of yeah. um, there. So one of the uh, one of the the longest um, or oldest naturally occurring morphological mutants um, that w- and by morphology, I just mean like a, a form or a structure or, you know, something you visibly that you can observe about the plant. Um, and, and I, whenever I, sorry, I just kind of segue into talking about plants and, and I forget no, you're fine, a lot yeah. about animals because that's, I focus on plants. Um, but the epigenome is, is present in animals as well. It just operates a little bit differently. But okay. so one of the, the first naturally occurring morphological mutant 
to be recorded um, by Carl Linnaeus was approximately 250 years ago. And it was this little plant um, known as Linaria vulgaris. And the common name for it is butter and eggs toad flax. So it's this cute little plant and it has this adorable little flower. But there were these weird mutants in natural populations of this butter and eggs toad flax that the flower um, took on what's known as a pyloric form. And that basically means that instead of having this kind of asymmetrical flower form, it takes on this like almost star looking flower form. And it's really, really striking and really, really different. Um, and that was recently discovered back in 1999 to be controlled by an epigenomic mutation. So it's the presence, one of the chemical modifications that can occur on DNA and influence gene expression is methylation. And that so far is kind of like the, the most well studied chemical modification. And, and that it's the most well studied for many reasons, but they were able to identify that whenever this one specific gene was methylated, it produced this pyloric, this star-shaped flower form. And when they then experimentally unmethylated that gene, the flower form in those in the offspring of those plants returned to the traditional or the, the wild type, as we would call it, flower form. So it can be so, really, really powerful. <laughs> So, so, and not to interrupt, but mm -hmm. just to try and ask a, a question. So, like, if you, in, again, the, the layman's understanding of, of genetics, like, if I have the possibility for brown eyes or blue eyes in my genome, I don't know if that's what you would call it, but whatever, mm -hmm. if that's possible for me, if I have blue eyes, it's not, it, it's not the result of the epigenome, it's the result of that one of those was the dominant gene. And so that's the one that's expressed and it's purely self-contained within the genome. Like that, that um, decision isn't really the right word, but like whether or not, which one of those is true. Is that, is that um, kind of right? Yeah. So, well, unfortunately you picked a really complex characteristic. Oh, well. <laughs> eye color, eye color is, <laughs> is really, um, eye color is like, is what we would call multigenic. So it's a little bit harder to yeah. say that it's just like a brown eye gene versus a blue eye gene. It's a little more complicated than that. Well, that's what they're teaching at the community college, just so we're clear. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm. That's the wealth of knowledge that I'm currently drawing from. So yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm about to pull back the curtain on science. Unfortunately, a lot of stuff um, is is nearly incorrect as presented in lower level science classes so that it makes sense. Yeah. And then like you get a few years into an actual degree in it and you're like, Oh, that's kind of bullshit. Here's the rest of the stories. Like we all, Paul Harvey shows up and here's the rest of the story. And, <laughs> and now we know that it's actually like 16 to 30 genes or something that control eye colors. But when you do the Punnett squares in bio 101, it's two genes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Punnett yeah. squares. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was good at that. <laughs> so, had a future a lot of potential they said yeah pissed it all away with podcasting <laughs> um <laughs> okay well i'm sorry i keep trying to make these connections then that aren't that aren't really working so it's just confusing it further but. oh no that, i feel like it's my fault i should do a better job of explaining it. but this is really this is good for me because that's that's part of that's a huge part of being a scientist is having to explain these complex ideas uh, you know, to the general public, to people who may not, this may not be their specialty, but science, it, it affects everyone. Um, and these are incredibly important and relevant things for people to know about. Um, and so that's actually, that's something that I do is I, I go and talk to like native plant societies. 
um, and different garden clubs and uh, naturalist groups and things like that and, and try to explain to them what I'm doing, which can be very um, kind of academic and in some ways intimidating. Um, yeah. But it's also... <laughs> It's I can put it in a in a framework or within a, a framework that makes sense and is relevant to what they're interested in as just essentially passionate citizen science. Um, yeah, no, so it's it's good for me to try mm. to explain it. And if you're not understanding it, then I then that's or if, if I'm conf- if it's confusing, then that's I feel like that's totally on me. Oh well, no, <laughs> certainly not trying to assign blame um, in that kind of way at all. You're, you're doing a fine job. It. Okay, all right, all right. I'll fight you for it at the at the flagpole. Um, it was a school joke because we, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, sometimes I reach, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it, you you still you still survive. You still go forward. Yeah, you should um, pull first, or you should stretch before you uh, pull something. If you can reach that far. But. Yeah. Well, I spent a lot of time around Misha, so the bar is pretty low, as you understand. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I know, he'll go anywhere. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, well, so I guess I guess then to, to try and continue to understand it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're talking about that there's like the, again, there's like the, the genome and then there's the epigenome. Mm-hmm. And then that, that influences the genome but doesn't necessarily – modify it in and of itself it modifies how it expresses how the yeah, expression so it, it doesn't change the dna sequence so the dna sequence like in the flower example i use the butter and eggs toad flax that gene is identical in um, both the pyloric flower form and the wild type flower form so the dna sequence of that gene does not change the only thing that changes is the presence of methylation on specific nucleotides in the sequence so it's a really, really powerful system um, because especially whenever you think about flower form in plants, I mean, that that can have direct consequences for natural selection um, and adaptation and, and leading to different, you know, changing the trajectory of evolution of a population because flowers and their forms are often what's responsible for attracting pollinators and you're talking mm-hmm. directly about the reproductive tissue of the organism. So it, it can be incredibly powerful. Um, and we still we're you know, we're learning more about it all the time, but we really don't know a lot about it outside of model systems. Um, and so that that's kind of where I'm focused is I my work focuses on rare and endangered plants because uh, I'm interested in this and from the perspective of conservation of plants. And um, yeah, so we're we're just trying to kind of explore and and figure out how much epigenomic variation exists in natural populations uh, because we know it can change characteristics and traits, specifically those that may be linked to, um, you know, adaptive lineages um, or local adaptation in different populations. Like, can we harness that in order to better conserve specific populations? Can we identify plants that uh, maybe have greater... um, greater ability to modify their epigenome so that maybe they have a broader range of characteristics that they can produce in response to changing environmental conditions, which is incredibly relevant thinking about climate change, especially for plants, which are, you know, sessile in nature. So they can't get up and move. If it gets too hot where they grow, they are just kind of stuck there. So can they modify the way that they express their genome so that they can better respond to increased temperature or increased or reduced precipitation and um, so that they can persist through that environmental change 
and maybe, you know, potentiate an alternative pathway to adaptation that isn't, that isn't based on genetic diversity. Um, because by and large, the theory of evolution, you know, rests on genetic diversity and the necessity of genetic diversity in order for organisms to adapt. So if organisms like rare and endangered plants lack that diversity, are they all just doomed? Um, are they all basically facing evolutionary dead ends and going to go extinct? Or might the epigenome, you know, provide um, a different path for them to adapt and persist? And, and that's really what I'm interested in. And so, I mean, is it natural, uh, natural is not the right word, is it common that plants go extinct through these cycles just uh, on, independently, or, or do you see that? Do you see things going extinct? I mean, you're talking about endangered, you know, plant species, yeah. I guess. Well, I mean, I guess, so it, it's hard, it's hard to say, um, from the pers- from like my perspective, from the perspective of an individual person, it's hard to say that we that I can that I can see things going extinct. And one reason is that it's really, really, really difficult to catalog all of the diversity that exists in nature. So, like, there's something called the IUCN Red List, and that lists um, rare, threatened, and endangered plants worldwide and animals. Um, and so that's a list that a lot of people focus on and uh, will, you know, contribute information to if they're working on one of those systems that are thought to be threatened or endangered. And you also work with like state level or federal level, level governments in different uh, countries around the world that keep track of the rare and endangered populations of plants. And so, I mean, things fall through the cracks and sometimes, you know, we'll say that something's gone extinct and then it's so random, you know, 20 years later, another sighting of it pops up in a different location, not far from where it was known to be. So it's, it's a little difficult, I think, especially with plants in some ways to be able to say definitively that something is in fact extinct um, versus animals. Like, you know, if you don't see a dodo uh, on Madagascar, for 60 or 70 years, then the dodo is gone. <laughs> I think right. that's what, you know, animals are in some ways, not all, but in some ways animals are a little bit easier um, to record observance data like that than plants. Well, and so, I mean, and to some extent, isn't it the case that we find, you know, I, I guess like animal fossils are kind of a way that people discover that like, oh, hey, this thing used to be around because right. we don't see it now, but here's its corpse so clearly right. it must have been here at some point yeah and i guess it's probably a lot more rare that you get that with i mean like a tulip doesn't leave a corpse necessarily right like, uh well no they do um i mean i don't know about the tulip specifically but like especially <laughs> <laughs> um, especially with like uh you know um what am i trying to i'm thinking of like swamp beds and things like that like there are actually some some areas that are really really rich um, mm. in fossil records of plants. And actually, that's something that's super cool with plants is fossil records of plants have also, there's a, another subfield known as physiognomy, which um, is essentially where based on fossil records of plants, they help, those records help to reconstruct um, paleoclimate scenarios because we know that different forms of plants 
um, things like leaf shape, venation patterning, um, stem size, stuff like that, different forms of plants will better survive and exist in specific kinds of climates. So whenever you find a fossil record um, of plants, you can basically survey the plant life that's recorded in it. And using combining geology and botany, you can figure out how old that fossil record is and then help use the plant fossils to help reconstruct the climate of that time. Oh, okay. Huh. That's yeah. really interesting. Okay. Well, there you go then. Fair enough. Plenty of plant fossils, folks. That's what we learned today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My job <Definitely>. is done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought that there were like dinosaurs and then like, I don't know, like a couple of like beaver otter type things or something here and there, you know, but otherwise, what are we really looking at? Turns out everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. The spectrum, the full spectrum was dinosaurs and beavers or otters or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they probably whatever. have some cousins that I don't know about, you know? I mean, I feel like whatever is a good catch all general term that's everything yeah. else yeah also learned yeah. that at the community college used it on exams so. <laughs> uh. <laughs> i hope you got full points for your whatever answers yeah, yeah i got i got a, a passing grade yes. um so okay so i um i'm trying to so the the the, the stuff that you're that you're researching mm-hmm. Does it occur without human intervention or are you looking at the effects of mankind as having that's creating this, these epi- right. genome, epigenetic, mm-hmm. epi- yeah, these epigenetic um, phenomenon? <laughs> yeah, it's, no, that's right. Epigenetic phenomenon. Bam. Yeah. Boom. Um, (laughs) mic drop right uh not really actually i'm using one of misha's mics this is expensive he'd he'd be upset if i dropped it yeah well you know (laughs) um yeah so well it's so it's influenced by uh at this point we think a lot um and that's and i i hate that i can't really get more specific than that but it it's it's a combination of things um and trying to kind of tease out what influences these epigenomic modifications and what doesn't. And part of what is difficult about it is that some of these modifications um, and the placement of them can be transgenerationally stable, which is essentially all I'm saying is it can go from parent to offspring or parent to child, um, just like your standard genes can. And so some of these modifications are incredibly stable between generations. And some of them are not. Some of them are pretty environmentally labile. And what we've seen is that environmental conditions, especially things like drought um, or, you know, precipitation in general. So drought or flooding um, and also things like uh, pathogens. So pests on plants can really create this massive response at the epigenomic level. Um, And sometimes that's not necessarily passed on between parent and offspring. So we're still trying to figure out why some of them are incredibly stable. And we're talking, and when I say incredibly stable, I even mean on like evolutionary timescales. Like um, there have been some groups that have been able to reconstruct evolutionary phylogenies of, you know, like so family trees basically um, going back, you know, tens of thousands to millions of years using stable patterns of DNA methylation. And then there are also groups who can look at one individual, um, which is essentially what I'm doing with a, um, all of my projects, 
I can look at an individual within a single season and impose an experimental treatment and see the influence of that in that individual. So it's an incredibly complex system and it seems to have varying levels of sensitivity. And we're just, we're trying to get our head around what all it's doing, um, what's within its capacity to do and, you know, what's wishful thinking. And so I, I think that there, that's some of what I'm looking at is, um, you know, I, I would love to find out that the epigenome can in fact provide some kind of mechanism of persistence for these rare and endangered plants, because then maybe they're not as um, threatened as we think they're going to be under different climate change scenarios. So maybe we don't have to worry about them so much that they might go extinct. Uh, I would love to to find that out, but we really don't know at this point. It data so far looks fairly promising, but it's it's hard to say. It's it's so early in the field in this looking at these kinds of questions um, that it's really hard to to say what's what right now. Mm. So you still so definitely though you would say that it 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 seems inevitable that there's. Um, going to be significant links between the type of work that you're doing and the effects of of climate change at large. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and also, I mean, within a conservation context, you know, I mean, you asked about like, can it, can it be things that humans influence or can it be things just um, generally in the environment? I would say broadly right now we can say both. I don't know that I can point you to exact specifics of what those, what those activities might be that would cause different things. But I, you know, it's, it's a big interest also in agriculture because we have a lot of monocultures out there. We have a lot of crops that feed a lot of people. And one of the concerns, one of the huge concerns always is how much genetic diversity is enough to keep these things going if there's some kind of, um, you know, uh, massive pathogen that goes through and, and wipes out like 90% of the corn in the world or something, then what? And so the epigenome is also being looked at for things like that. Like, can it provide an additional layer of diversity for our crops? Um, can it provide a way for crops to respond to climate change as well? Because um, we're we are farming a lot of the arable, you know, the farmable land all over the world. So there's not there's not a lot of places we can move all of our our food uh, plants if we need to. So that so it's it's incredibly it, it's an incredibly exciting and um, an interesting area and important. And it also, you know, there's epigenomics of disease in humans. Like it's it's a big area of clinical research as well. So it's it's just kind of all over the place, and um, and lots of people working on it and doing really cool things. But we're yeah, we're still kind of we're still kind of trying to get our hand, get our arms around um, everything that can influence it and everything that it can influence. So I kind of want to ask you about the um, just the academic process to some extent. I mean, obviously, you know, the PhD very <laughs> far along in yeah. that in that track, if you will, um, and 
obviously you have a very significant, sophisticated understanding of, of these things. Um, but it didn't start there. No. So, so was, you know, when, when you were in high school, was this type of stuff <laughs> something you were in? And I, and I, I'm obviously not, <laughs> you weren't looking about the epigenome or something. No, but I, I just was. Mean, I'm a genius. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're in the presence of brilliance right now. Huh. Okay. No. I see. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> It'll be funnier I, whenever I talk about high school here in a second. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just didn't know if like, um, yeah, if, if, you know, science or biology or any of those sorts of topics were, were interesting to you when you were younger? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, not, not in an academic sense, unfortunately. Okay. Um, uh, so in high school, I was a solid B student. Mm-hmm. Um, but same, so, to, <laughs> so to give you an idea, my, <laughs> my, I'm proud of that, though. So <laughs> I mean, at this point, looking back, I'm kind of amazed I was a solid B student and not that <laughs> and really because I'm amazed that I even put in that much effort because looking back, I'm, I'm like, I don't even think I I don't even think I really put in the effort to get a solid B. I think my teachers felt bad for my mom who worked at the school and they were like, <laughs> you know what, <laughs> you know what, let's do her a solid <laughs> and let's just pass her daughter with a B. Because <laughs> no, yeah, I had a dream. <laughs> I had a dream within the last few years where I woke up. Well, you know, in the dream, I came into consciousness within the dream in uh, in high school, and I like kind of looked around and realized I was in a high school class, and I was, you know, a teenager, but I was like me now mentally. Yeah. Okay. And I just looked around for like three seconds, and I go, "Oh, uh, uh-uh. and then just stood up and walked out, <laughs> yeah. like. There's just not a chance. Like right. I would, nope. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not gonna be able to do it. No. Uh, anyway, so I sorry I, no. I <laughs> interrupted, but yes. Um, so you were a solid B student. Solid uh, so. B student. Surprised that I was that. I really do think they were pity bees because um, mm. I I was not studious. Like I was, you know, I just I was the kid that would debate the merits of the kind of assignment we were given. Mm. Um, so I know that my teachers were annoyed by me and, and I had a really, I have a smart mouth now, but I at least have the good sense to have some kind of like minor filter in place so that I'm more Mm -hmm. appropriate in certain situations. I had like little to no filter back then. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a big problem for me in high school. I basically like I was just doing my time until I could get out of that ridiculous small town, which I now think of fondly. Like I had a lot, I had a lot of fun growing up. (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah. But no, it was not, it was not filled with like scientific curiosity and and the wonders of (laughs) the universe. Like, and what's funny is I think about it and it's like, it's not that I wasn't interested in that stuff. It's just that I was interested in it um, when I could talk to my older brother about it, who was, fantastically curious person and um, well-read and you know like I I was interested in it like I loved to go hiking and camping and floating but you put Mm -hmm. me in a classroom and I just god I just wanted to rubber band a plastic bag around my head I just couldn't be you know provoked (laughs) to care about anything except when I could you know be done with it all right right yeah well it's it's interesting because um Someone else, I, I just interviewed a couple weeks ago, who you know, Chris Crabtree. Mm-hmm. Um, he just finished his master's in yeah. in poetry. Um, similar similar subject matter. Um, equally complicated. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's very different. Um, but it, it, the, the, the one parallel is that he was not interested in writing when we were kids. I mean, I've known him since I was six. Yeah. And 
that was, I mean, I, I never, never, ever heard him talk about wanting to do that at all. The only time I remember him ever talking about poetry was he was trying to like, he was at Barnes and Noble one time and there was a cute girl looking at poetry books. And so he tried to like go pick up a, a poetry book to act, you know what I mean? Like to try and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, which didn't work, but, but then, you know, fast forward a decade and the guys what 15 years maybe, but whatever. And the guys, you know, got a master's degree in it. So it's just interesting how, um, something, and the reason I guess I, I say all this is that to get a, a, you know, a master's degree, let alone a PhD, it's just a tremendous amount of effort. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work involved in, in that. Yeah. And so it's just interesting that, to the, to just see how people can continually evolve and change and like be willing to fully commit themselves to something that if you had asked them a decade earlier, what do you want to do? And it's like, they would have never said that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, honestly, that was still the situation whenever I started undergrad because mm. I, so I, I started undergrad the year, like the following fall after I graduated from high school um, mm -hmm. But I know now looking back, that was 100% so that I could move out of my parents' house and get away from my hometown. All right. And so, I mean, still, I was I was just kind of a, a fuck off um, and a mm -hmm. very unimpressive student. Um, I was barely a student. I didn't go a lot. I remember the second semester of, of my undergrad, I remember coming back to my dorm room and having this ridiculously enraged message on my uh, answering machine because they still existed at that time <laughs> <laughs> from my mom who was late. She was just lighting into me because I had an F in PE. It was like, whatever, you know, like phys ed 101. And she was like, nobody fails PE unless they don't go. I know you're not going to class. Like, cause I guess they had sent me, I was already on probation that semester. And that was the problem. Like, cause I had screwed up so bad my first semester <laughs> that I had gotten on probation by the second semester. So they sent her a report card and it was just like, I mean, I just like, I managed to make it one more semester. Um, like I, I enrolled and, and tried again, like the, the next fall. And so that was halfway through my sophomore year. And then I just like, I just dropped. I was like, this isn't happening. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm sick of being yelled at by my parents because I, I had some loans, but also they were trying to help, you know, me pay for it. Cause obviously like all those pity bees in high school, believe it or not, don't amount to scholarships when you go to college. Sure. So it was, so I dropped out. I just dropped out. And I just kind of leaned into being, a, you know, just working and hanging with friends and um, and partying. And that's what I did for like five-ish years. And then it was it was weird. It was like this like light bulb just kind of went off one day in my mid-20s. And I was like, you know, I should probably do something with my life. And I didn't know what that meant or what to do. But I was ready to make some changes, specifically in my lifestyle, like apparently you can max out on partying. And mm -hmm. so I just like, I just thought, well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll finish my undergraduate degree. And so I enrolled in a community college that time because the university wouldn't have me back. <laughs> I did so bad. <laughs> so I enrolled in a community college um, and I took out loans because my parents were also like, Unfortunately, they have, you know, their memories are, are were still pretty airtight at that time. And they remembered mm -hmm. how I completely uh, did not appreciate their help and was a screw off the first time. And they were like, 
That sounds like a great idea. We definitely think you should go back to school. Good luck with all of that. We're happy to offer moral support. Let us know how it goes. Mm-hmm. So I had to work full time and take out loans. And and I think all of it, it was just like the right time for me that I just, I got, I got super serious about figuring out my life. Um, and I, so part of that was general education requirements. Uh, one of the classes was biology. And funny enough, I had actually taken a biology class and failed it spectacularly in my first not really an attempt at undergrad because I never I went never to that class. Me, so, class. <laughs> you were a natural. You were a natural. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us have to work at that. Okay, Walker? Well, you probably didn't get to take it online. So that was probably the other day. I did not. Uh, it was an 8 a.m. Yeah. lecture and you better believe drinking as much as I was, I was not going to an 8 a.m. lecture. <laughs> Um, oh my god! I'm, or the yeah. labs ever? The labs are like four hours long on like a Thursday afternoon. Like who's doing that? Not this. That's kid. what I was gonna say, dude. Is the worst part about college level science class time is is the lab requirement. Oh like, man, they're intense. That's the ultimate win of the online class. Is not only the lectures. <laughs> you get to do video game style labs where you just click little buttons and little flashy things happen. And you're like, yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. Well, if you've ever, if you would have seen me play video games or if Misha was here and would have heard you say that, you would have both been like, oh no, she was better off physically being there. <laughs> I'm not a strong video game player. I really have a lot of fun. Sure. <laughs> I get super into it, but I suck. <laughs> I'm really bad. And what sucks is like, I thought I was really good at video games when I was a kid. And so I told Misha, I was like, oh, I love Donkey Kong Country. It's the best. So we found a copy of Donkey Kong Country for my super nest yes i have a super nest hey, that's and awesome. um and we decided to play two player and i was nice i let him go first and he played for like 20 or 30 minutes and then he died and then it was my turn and i played for like 20 seconds and died and he looked at me and he was like if i didn't know you i would think you had never even seen a video game before in your life (laughs) (laughs) but i was like that's you know yeah so so no video game labs would not have worked for me i would have been worse off believe it or not (laughs) they're easier than donkey kong country just for the record but okay that's fair (laughs) donkey kong country is actually somewhat demanding oh the story where you play destroy all humans is a better which we don't have to oh, go through, but well, that's a better. <laughs> I tried that one too. And my method, my method for that was basically like the little laser gun or whatever it is that you have. Mm. Like I am really, really bad with the, the, whatever that joystick thing, the dual sticks. There yeah. you go. I'm really, really, really bad with that apparently. Mm-hmm. And so my method of just trying to survive that game was to basically stand in one location and just like push as far right as I could and just mow everything down that tried to come at me, which you don't make any progress when you do that, but you do in fact survive. Sure. So, sure. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me having never done something before. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but when I was like, I don't know, 12, I used to go to the, the Christian middle school oh. and, uh, and so on Wednesdays, they had on Wednesday evening, there was like a confirmation class because mm-hmm. they have you have to get confirmed in the Lutheran church, kind of similar to like Catholic church. Right. Um, so anyway, so I on Wednesdays, I would get out of school and go to this other kid's house. His mom would come pick us up and we would go to his house and hang out. And then she would take us to the confirmation classes and then I would go home after all that was done. So I go over to this kid's house and his mom is like, 
the sweetest lady ever. Like, always made snacks for us, always had juice, like, just a really warm, nice lady who would never be mean to anyone ever. Mm -hmm. And um, they had a piano, and I said, oh, my dad has a piano in his basement, actually. And they said, oh, um, do you play it? And I said, yeah, I could play you like Mary Had a Little Lamb or something. And they were like, oh, well, please do. And so I sat down and <laughs> just on the highest note possible, so the key all the way to the farthest left, uh-huh. I just pressed that vaguely to the rhythm of Mary Had a Little Lamb <laughs> and, and sang along with it. And then at the very end, I was like, whose fleece was white as... And then I hit the lowest key, like all, the key all the way to the right. And I was like, snow. Oh, my God. And then just sat there. <laughs> <laughs> and she just stared at me. And she goes, that was that was very nice. Thank you. And I go, I'm totally kidding. I don't actually know how to play. That was just all a joke. And she was like, oh, oh, thank heaven. I, Oh, I couldn't. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to not make a face. That was okay. I'm really glad you told me that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I just invite humiliation into my life. So um. I think you should have just went with it. I think you should have offered to play another song and done the exact same thing. I would accept that. It, that's why I described it, how nice she was. Like, I felt really guilty after doing it because she was too nice to tell me, like, get the F out of here. You know what I mean? Like, she had to, she had to still you know, say oh, something man. nice. And it's like, Oh God, you shouldn't have had to do that. Like right. that's <laughs> anyway, completely off track. So <laughs> well, we were talking about you going to undergrad. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, so the Mary had a little lamb song um, that actually jogged my memory. Speaking of undergrad. Um, nice. Yeah. I took piano lessons when I was a kid and mm. uh, I was not, I wasn't even studious with that. So you can imagine how terrible I played. And it only lasted for about a year and a half before my mom was like, screw this. She's not getting better. She doesn't <laughs> practice like, you know, done. And um, but two of the songs, the only two songs that uh, I retained any kind of muscle memory for how to play was Mary Had a Little Lamb and um, Jesus Loves Me. And <laughs> so I remember one classics, night, classics. yeah, right. Crowd pleasers. And so <laughs> I remember um, my friend Kim and I, Kim, who was actually happened to be my RA during my first stint in undergrad. Um, we had gone out and gotten completely hammered and we came back to our dorm, um, which was Hammond's house uh, on M- now it's MSU SMS at the time that campus. And it had a, a baby grand in the foyer of that mm-hmm. and uh yeah we came back in the middle of the night just completely hammered and i played jesus loves me um <laughs> for like 10 or 15 minutes as like other drunks wow. were straggling it it was a really it was a good time it was a it was wow, a fine the time. Freebird version of yeah. jesus loves me. i don't yeah, think right. it's usually 15 minutes long but <laughs> no, that's, no 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 yeah, I was jam banding it. <laughs> That's a cover, yeah, for fish. The fish version. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so I, obviously, I met you when you, you know, met Misha. Mm-hmm. Um, so, had you started going to school before you met Misha, or was it yeah. around the same time? Yeah, okay. I actually. So, so I met Misha um, the september after i had graduated from my undergrad so i whenever i decided to go back to school i I went to community college i got all of my gen eds there um Mm -hmm. and i did i did so well at that point that um that i was able to then be accepted into a 
a university. Um, and actually, I even because I did so well in the community college classes, um, I had a 4.0 whenever I was transferring to Drury University. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so Drury was great. They're a private school, so they're a little more expensive, but they do a really, really good job of making sure that kids who um, display some kind of scholastic achievement or, you know, some kind of um, studiousness actually have money available to go to school. And so Drury did a fantastic job of making sure that they made as many scholarships available to me as possible so I could go and I could reduce or limit the amount of um, uh, loans that I had to take out in order to go. So I I finished up at Drury with a a double major um, in biology and psychology. And, um, and, And I met Misha in the the following fall after right after I graduated okay and then so it was it was a couple of years um, before I started my master's and he actually uh, Misha played a, a large part he's I should give him more credit than even saying he played a large part he's essentially like the reason I even ended up in graduate school because I didn't I didn't come from a family of people who went to college and mm-hmm. I didn't come from an an area like I grew up in a really rural area and so nobody like I didn't even know what graduate school was nobody my biology teacher actually had a PhD um, and he was from the Ozarks and so that's why he came back just because of his love of the area and he taught high school and I was extremely I would have been extremely fortunate to have taken biology classes under him in high school but I was kind of just a an idiot high schooler and I didn't pay much attention in his classes either. So that was great. And mm-hmm. um yeah, and so I, I just came from this area and this kind of background that I didn't I didn't even know that one, that graduate school is a thing, or two, that it was a thing that was um anything that I could achieve or that was in within reach uh, you know, my reach specifically. And I, so I thought I would get my bachelor's and then I would go to work for like the Department of Conservation or Natural Resources or something like that, um, which is what I wanted to do. And I found out pretty rapidly that with a bachelor's in general biology and no research experience in undergrad, I was qualified to do a lot of nothing. Um, I didn't, like, I, I basically was qualified to do like temporary positions. Um, or part-time work and because I had to work full-time to put myself through the rest of my undergrad uh, you know I mean I was I was essentially like a normal adult at that point like I had rent I had a car payment I had insurance I had to buy my groceries right. and pay utilities and I so I couldn't I couldn't do temporary or part-time or pro bono work and and even with a degree, then if I would have pursued those jobs, I was going to be competing against undergrads who were doing it in the summer on their break so that they could get experience. So I, and if more, unfortunately, um, I love my experience at Drury, but nobody there told me I needed research experience. Mm. So I, you know, that was disappointing. And I was thinking, uh, so I, I spent a, like a year and a half, two years after undergrad before my master's trying to figure out what I was going to do about that because I was working as a secretary and I loved the company that I worked for. It was a small company and it was great people, but that's not what I wanted to do. And I, mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, if I, you know, I, I put in all this effort finally um, to get a degree in something that I'm really interested in. And it would be a shame to not spend my life like 40 hours a week um, being able to, to work in that field or in that area, mm-hmm. you know? And, 
so I talked to Misha about it a lot and he comes from a family, you know, of, um, you know, people with PhDs. Both of his parents have PhDs. I think his sister has a master's. Like they were kind of an academic family. And so I don't even think it occurred to him that anybody would think that they wouldn't, that graduate school wouldn't be something that they could do. And so he kept telling me, he was like, I think you should consider graduate school. You know, if you want to work in the field and you find out that you can't with a bachelor's, then that's kind of a logical next step. And I just kept thinking, so I, I kind of looked at it and I thought, I can't, oh my God, I mean, I can't afford graduate school tuition. Like that's insane. And, and a lot of the programs I was looking at were saying that you can't even work outside of school while you do it. And it's like, so I'd have to take out, like, I didn't know anything about how it works. So I thought I'll have to take out loans to live on. I'll have to take out loans to pay for school. Like, this is crazy. I can't go, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to get this master's degree just so that I can maybe get a job paying 45 a year working in a field. Like it all seemed very kind of, uh, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, like white people problems, like, Mm -hmm. like it was just crazy. It was like, but I've already got a job that pays my bills and no, I'm not working in a field I want to, but I'm not hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt just to, you know, fulfill this desire I have to work in a specific field. And we kept talking about it. And finally, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do a second bachelor's specifically in conservation biology. And that might position me better to actually become like maybe a conservation agent or something. Cause that was, mm-hmm. that was really kind of where I was targeting ending up was working in conservation. And so I thought, all right. So I, I made an appointment with, um, uh, I forget what, I forget what the, the position was. It was somebody in administration at the Dar school of agriculture at Missouri State University because conservation is under agriculture at that university. And so I made an appointment to talk to him and just to kind of get information on conservation biology. And we had been talking for like five or six minutes and he was like, I really think you need to consider a graduate program. Um, he said, I want you to meet with Dr. Elliot, uh, Dr. Anson Elliot. He was the, the head, the department head of the School of Agriculture. And um, he said, I really think he's also going to want you to be in a graduate program. I think, you know, don't don't spend the time on a second bachelor's like you would be able to handle this. And I think you'd be a good fit. And so he took me in and introduced me to Dr. Elliot. And I just I was still kind of resistant. I was like, I just don't know about this. But Dr. Elliot cleared up some things um, for me about the finances. He's like, oh, no, you get something called an assistantship. And that's where the university essentially pays you a wage so that you can do your research and we'll give you, you know, you'll, it'll cover your tuition. Um, we'll, we'll waive your tuition as a graduate student because you're doing research for the university. So being a graduate student in STEM is kind of like being, um, a, a research employee for the university, but you take classes and you earn a degree at the end of it. And so that made me feel better, but I was still, I still had this big hang up that I had spent most of my life screwing off and not being good academically. And so I was really kind of nervous about signing on for that. And then not only would I maybe let myself down, but then I've got this university and these people who have backed me and said, Oh, you can do this. And what if I, what if I screw up and, you know, and, and it just falls apart. And then I'm back to square one. I've got to go out and get a job that I don't really want. And I don't have the degree. And, so I, I still spent some time, like about six months, 
kind of kicking it around. And Dr. Elliot was, he was awesome. Um, he, he worked pretty hard to recruit me. He gave me his cell number and told me to call him whenever I had questions because he was that committed to getting me into the program. Wow. So between, and I honestly, like I made the appointment to go talk about a second bachelor's and I told Misha, yeah, I'll, yeah, 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 I'll ask about grad school, whatever. And I basically told him that so that he would get, <laughs> so that he would like leave me alone about graduate school so I could go yeah. back home and be like, yeah, it's not going to work. See, they, they told He's me. He's very annoying. So I understand <laughs> what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> So between between Misha's encouragement <laughs> and Dr. Elliot's um, encouragement and both of their persistence, um, I ended up very anxiously enrolling in the graduate program at Missouri State University, and I ended up um, ended up in a lab, the Huang Lab, that was really really rigorous, and I uh, I got fantastic training. And, um, and man, the classes, like I don't have a cell and molecular background. My undergrad was all largely ecology, um, and evolution and like general biology stuff. I had one genetics class going into my master's, but I now have my master's in plant breeding and genetics. (laughs) And my master's thesis project was in, um, was in quantitative genetics of leaf shape. And so I, I, that, I feel like my master's like really it took this kind of amorphous um, biology lover and it gave me direction and kind of shaped me into a scientist. And um, mm. yeah, yeah. So that was kind of like, that was the real kick in the pants was, was once I did it, like it was, it was like, I, it was zero, it was nothing to like 90 miles an hour. So whenever you finish your PhD, um, will you continue working in a research type capacity or is there some, and will you do that, continue to do that for academic institutions or would you go, are there private companies? Like, are you going to go work for Monsanto or something maybe? I mean, and I just, that's just one of the only companies I know about that does stuff like that. But (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. So in, in my ideal world, I would get to keep doing nothing but research for the rest of my life. I love research. And that was something that because I didn't have any experiences in undergrad, I I didn't even know. And so when I started the master's, I thought, oh, well, I'll do this so I can get a better job. I'll get a job then somewhere in the field. And I didn't really care what that was. And it was just a couple of months into actually doing research in my master's that I was like, hold on a tick. I love this. Um, Mm. And it just... And it, it's just it's just ramped up from there. And so that in an ideal world, yes, I would keep doing research for the rest of my life. I don't care where or who I do it for. I just want to be able to ask the questions that I find interesting and find the answers. Um, I think in real terms, the really real world, I would love to land a job like uh, what one of my advisors has, which is essentially it's at a nonprofit institution. 
um, mm. and and your job is uh, just full research, but you you have basically like special status with area universities that allows you to take on and advise students. So you've got like essentially a lab that operates like it's academic, um, but you get to do it without the academic responsibilities of a professor. So like she doesn't have to teach classes each semester. She doesn't have to mentor undergrads. She does, but that's something that she chooses to do. Um, and it's mm. through a, a separate program, but she still gets all of the benefit of being able to produce PhD students and and develop projects like that and pursue those things. Hmm. So that would be my ideal. I think second to that um, would be an academic institution where the split is um, at worst pretty 50-50 between the duties of a professor like teaching classes and stuff like that and research. Um, I think if it if the split starts to favor teaching more than research, then I would have to really kind of reassess what what it is I was going to do because I I don't I really enjoy talking about biology, but I don't enjoy just regurgitating um, like the the standard line, you know, like the all of the the basic like introduction to biology stuff like i wouldn't want to just i would never want to adjunct <laughs> and just teach like tons of intro oh bio God. labs and stuff like i don't want to do that um the adjunct professor role is like the it, i don't know if it's the worst job in america oh. i'm sure it's not but it is <laughs> it is up there and people would, wouldn't think it because it's yeah. like uh you're teaching college classes and it's like yeah for pennies yeah and you do so much yeah, work. Yeah, it's soul and crushing. It's so competitive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and at the end of it, if you're going to actually land a gig somewhere, you're probably going to have to move across the country. Yeah, I mean, because it's it, you just kind of have to take a spot where it's open. It's kind of it's it's funny because they're so entirely separate. But like uh, like people who become like pastors or preachers mm-hmm. find themselves in a similar boat where it's yeah. like. You know, they call it answering the call, but it's like they just kind of have to go where there's a need because it's not like there's a turnover every two years of, right. you know, <laughs> right. the, the people in those roles. So Well, and it's, you know, and also with the adjunct thing, it gets really, really tricky to manage that in any way that could be perceived as one's own favor if you do it for very long. Because in STEM, when you adjunct, you are not doing, you're not producing research because if you don't have a lab, then you can't get funding. And if you don't have funding, you can't do research. And if you don't do research, you're not publishing. And publications are the currency of academia, especially in STEM. So if if you adjunct for a year or two, that's a year or two, unless you worked really, really, really hard in graduate school and then in your postdoc and you've got like a backlog of papers that you can that you can try to push out and get published. If you don't have that, then you don't publish for a year or two. And now you're trying to compete against people who may have a solid publication record and they want the same job as you. So you, yeah. it's really slippery in STEM because you can you can easily find yourself in a place where, unfortunately, if you adjunct, then no matter how badly you don't want to keep doing that, you kind of adjunct your way out of ever getting a permanent PI position. Have you ever heard of a guy named Adam Grant? I don't think so. Is that name familiar to you? He's, I mean, he's not a biologist at all. He's a, a psychologist. Um, 
specializes in like workplace psychology mm-hmm. type stuff. Um, he has a podcast called Work Life. Um, that's actually really good. I highly recommend anyone check it out. It's got some some interesting concepts, and it's really just kind of like taking common workplace interactions and how to look at those differently to you know mm-hmm. negotiate them better or whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, he was talking about how <laughs> how exactly what you just were where you know, even though he has the podcast or whatever, he still works in some, I don't know if he works for a university. I think he must because he talks about having students. Mm. Um, but yeah, he talks about how he has to make, submit papers all of the time. And he has to submit, he, he was making a joke about how he has to, the papers they submit, they have to submit them anonymously mm-hmm. um, so that when they're peer reviewed or whatever, you know, there's no bias or whatever. And he, he's gotten criticism before on his papers where people will be like, this seems pretty off base. You should really look at the work of Adam Grant. <laughs> who's an expert in this field and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, come on. Oh, that's like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. That's good. Um, but, but yeah, I didn't, I, it, it's a, it's an interesting world that I know very little about, but I w- am only, you know, the faintest bit familiar with that concept of like, you've got to have papers and you've got to put papers out. I read a book um, on behavioral economics is, is what it's called. Mm-hmm. The, the field is loosely called, but Richard Thaler is the author, but same thing. He talks, he talks a lot in that book about, he kind of, the book is kind of a, kind of a, a bit of a biography of himself and but with an emphasis on his field of study. Cause he's kind of the pioneer of that field of study and economics, kind of combining economics and psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he talks a lot in that book about, about all of those kinds of different things that you're talking about where he's like, going to different universities to partner with different, you know, researchers or scientists or whatever word you would use in in the field and and doing a program with them for two years and then leaves and goes to another place. And he's just constantly moving around, but constantly has to produce papers and and all this stuff. Um, It seems incredibly intimidating to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It just seems like there's a, it's just interesting because you would, from my perspective, it's like, Oh, if you're a researcher, like sweet, like you do research and, and I don't mean it in like a way that you would take advantage of it, but just literally like if you find out something or you discover something, then cool. And and even if you don't, maybe you report how you've proven that something is not true or is, you know, well, we've demonstrated that it was already how we thought it was or whatever, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I never would have guessed that it's like, yeah. And you have to produce papers that other people count as valid and if you don't (laughs) on a schedule then you're out and you know I don't know that's wild yeah well in a lot of institutions most institutions that I know of um, in academia uh, specifically like in in ecology and evolutionary biology I mean they may have an expectation that you're publishing um, a minimum of five publications per year and they also have expectations as to the impact factor of the journals that they get published in. So you can't just submit them to any old journal. They have to be journals that amount to something regarding their impact factor, which is basically, it's just this, this measure to, to quantitate um, or quantify like the, the validity of that journal um, based on like number of citations and number of um, people that access it and like all these. So there, there are all these different metrics that are used to try to, to basically size up whether or not you're doing not just enough research, but important enough research um, in order to, 
to achieve those academic positions and then keep them like your tenure is based on that. Every promotion in academia is based on publications in STEM, among other things like how much grant money you bring in. Do you mentor enough students? Do you do you do enough um, public service as a scientist? So public service would be things like uh, if you, you know, if you work with a, a naturalist group, in my case, like a naturalist group or something to to assist them on citizen science projects that they're doing? Do you take on REU students, which is an NSF program of research experience for undergrads? Um, do you provide your free services to review articles? Are you an editor on any journals? Like there's, there are all these tons and tons of things that they use. And you're expected to start doing a lot of that stuff as a postdoc too. So once you get your PhD, like you basically have to just hit the ground running and start and and try to to rack up experience that you can put on your CV which is basically just a an academic resume that says that you are a productive contributing engaged member of your scientific community otherwise you're not competitive for those jobs uh listening to that i have to say i really hope this podcasting thing works out for me cuz yeah little little less demanding only slightly but a little less demanding uh in the podcast world it's probably more demanding than whatever i'm doing because i'm not making any dollars at it so there's to be fair it's not like i sit atop the mountain <laughs> and and can you know yeah um man if you did and i just found that out i might just like change trajectories in my own life immediately <laughs> like you know what i'm podcasting that's where it's at <laughs> Maximum Science with Bridget. <laughs> Sounds like a great title. Yeah. Um, I'm good at titles. That's really? how I came up with that the walk was, show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. People are really curious about the inspiration, and it's like, yeah. it's a long journey, and we don't have time Well, you're this an week. impressive person. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you've met me. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so yeah, well, that will think, and thank you very much for speaking to the idea of, of the, and this was 20 minutes ago now, but, um, so I'm sorry, I didn't say something sooner, but when you were talking about the grant and scholarship stuff and just the access to funding, I think that's a, a thing that it's not, you know, everyone talks about college debt yeah, and every, I mean, there's such a national conversation, especially in politics about like, right. you know, forgiving that college debt or, or at the very least reducing it and, and whatever. And, and I think those are valid conversations. So that's not my point, but, but just simply that like, I mean, that's a big reason that I stayed away from school for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I will also admit, I just don't really care for it that much. Yeah. Um, I do. And it, it, I mean, it, it's not to say that I don't enjoy learning or I don't enjoy finding out fascinating things or whatever. Um, I just, I've always had a hard time escaping the, the feeling of the, um, the hierarchy of it. Yeah. And I really hate hierarchy for the sake of hierarchy like it really bothers me yeah. <laughs> so um and that's just a personal you know problem of mine that i <laughs> have to deal well, with yeah but. no i'm with you on that like academia uh is pretty enraging sometimes mm -hmm. because it's literally like if you have an issue as a student and you go to the office that's supposed to be able to take care of that issue sometimes they still just won't do it and the reason they won't take care of something for you is because, well, they need to talk to eight other people first. And it's literally like, it, it's you just need somebody to push a stupid button, but nobody will push the stupid button because they apparently haven't had enough conversations about it yet. And it's stuff like that that just makes me like want to walk into oncoming traffic. 
It's so inefficient. It's so free of reason and logic at times that I just can't. I can't deal with it. It, It's crazy making. And it's, you know, it's certainly not fair to paint all of all educators with this brush. Oh, no, sorry. I'm talking about administrators. (laughs) Oh, no, I know you are. I was I was prefacing what I was getting ready to say. Sorry. Um, No, no, you're fine. But that's just to say that, like, the other thing that I've dealt with, in addition to what you're talking about, is and it's not just people that are educators, though it can be in the administration as well, excuse me. But um, it's that you. You find people, and I think that probably the farther up the ladder you go, so probably at your level, you don't encounter this as often because anyone that's there wants to be there because it's too hard <laughs> otherwise, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, really, but but I think there are other people who, who get into jobs and education and it's not really their cup of tea or it's not really what they're suited for, yeah. but it's where they are, so it's what they do. And mm-hmm. it's like... There's just a lot of self-important stuff that goes on. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I actually, that wasn't the point that I was trying to, <laughs> to make. I completely derailed. What I was really getting, just going to say, though, is just that I think that a lot of people are really intimidated by the financial side of it. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear that, that that was the same thing you struggled with as well and that you were able to find ways to overcome it. Now, it sounds like the, the primary trait in overcoming that was was hard work and diligence, <laughs> not <laughs> you know, not some not writing the right letter to the right person or something. Right. Um, it was that you got a four point and you know you had the had done the work to to demonstrate yeah why you deserved it. Well, and I really had uh, I had to do that. Like nobody was going to take a chance on me at that point because of my mm-hmm. the first like three semesters that I I failed spectacularly. So if mm-hmm. I didn't essentially like work extra hard to prove myself then I wasn't going to go anywhere because certainly nobody was going to be like you know what she's a good kid at heart let's let's just give it a whirl like nobody was going to do that I had already shown that I wasn't worthy of that kind of confidence Something that, that is a, obviously another passion of yours is is your dogs and yeah. um, I guess dog now with Dempsey mm-hmm. um, and and doing like the agility training type of stuff. Do you find and I, and I know we just talked extensively about the fact that it's plants, um, mm-hmm. but do you find that your what you've learned through school and all of those things influences or affects your understanding of of dogs or do those two worlds interact in any way or not really because it's so specific into plants? Well, I think, I think that my subject matter in school doesn't, doesn't really influence, um, my interest or hobby with dogs. But I would say that my experience in working in research and learning how to be a researcher and how to Mm. kind of balance life 
certainly has influenced my my interest and and hobby and passion for dogs. And I say that because um it's really 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 hard to balance life when you're in graduate school and I part of that is the necessity of trying to consume and digest as much information as possible so that you become an expert in your field. Um, and also there, there are unfortunately just some expectations that come along with a lot of uh, labs and programs in graduate school where you're expected that if you're awake, that you're doing something productive for work. And I, when I started grad school, I had, as you know, I had Fiona and Tally. I had a pair of um, Doberman girls. And those dogs were just, they were the love of my life. I had them before I even met Misha. Like, it was just me and those dogs. And everything about them was absolutely delightful to me. Like, they were they were just the best. And I found, whenever I started my master's, that I really, really struggled with this incredible feeling of guilt of having to spend so much time focused on work and not enough time focused on, you know, these, these two uh, dog people that I loved endlessly. And, and at first I think I did a bad job of that. So when I started graduate school, of course, Misha and I were together. And so he, he really helped make it possible for me to, to survive the rigor of the master's program that I was in. Mm -hmm. And so he, he picked up a lot of the slack at first but I realized over time that that is not sustainable. And whenever you have something, when you have other things or people in your life that are incredibly important to you, no matter what your passion is for the work that you're doing, like time is time and you don't get that back. So you Mm -hmm. have to, you have to kind of be present in every moment and think about the way that you're dividing your energy. And, and so I feel like, yeah, I think having like those two things together um, has kind of helped in a way keep me grounded because uh, I think graduate school also lends itself nicely to obsessive um, work and obsessive thinking because you mm-hmm. just kind of never escape this pressure to get get your shit done. And mm-hmm. um, but that's not the way the rest of life operates. If you don't if you don't tend to other parts of your life, then they go away whether you want them to or not. And um mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think, and I think in a, in a lot of ways, dogs and my passion for dogs and my interest um, and my passion for my research and my field have have changed me in better ways uh, for the, the person that I am. I feel like they've helped those things together and then trying to balance them together have kind of helped highlight aspects of me that I want that I want to focus on that I want to be more prominent and let some other things go that maybe aren't as important or aren't that I don't like as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's, um, that's, I think that that's something that, um, is, you know, obviously is true for everyone and, and is hard. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is it's something that you constantly have to, to look at as well. You know, I mean, yeah. you could, you could be in a place now where everything, is as balanced as you can get it and, and you feel as comfortable with it as you can. And then, you know, yeah, it could be six months, it could be a year, it could be five years, but whatever. It doesn't mean that it's just, you know, stationary yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Like you always have to work at it. Yep. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it, it's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so with your dogs, you, like I mentioned, you do like the agility training mm-hmm. and um, so I understand in, in talking with you previously, but there's, they have these dog 
competitions. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's like four different categories, right? Yeah. Of yeah, yeah. So there's there's confirmation, which is the show. That's what everybody thinks about um, with show dogs, where they you know they trot around the ring and they stand right. pretty, and people judge them. And um, yeah, and then there's also there's agility, which is like running the obstacle courses, so weaves, jumps, tunnels, all of that stuff. And then there's mm -hmm. um, obedience, which I think everybody can probably picture obedience. You know, sits, downstays, recalls, um, retrieves, things like that. And then the newest category is called rally, and that's kind of a, a more casual or laid back version of obedience. Um, it's kind of like a little obstacle course instead of instead of just an open obedience ring. Uh, you kind of go through this little like course that's laid out with signs that tell you what to do. So it's it's a more mm. casual environment. Um, it's it's uh, yeah, and it's it's grown in a lot of popularity over obedience um and it's it's catching up to agility now it's it's become a really big sport but and i so, should also say real quick there are a lot uh, of other yeah. sports too i think those are just the big ones that a lot of people focus on but there's like dock diving and barn hunt okay. and lure coursing and tons and sure. you know scent work there's so many things out there to do with dogs that's fair yeah i i to be clear i i, I didn't specify I, I meant that like when you think of the dog show like you talked about yeah um that those types of competitions at least yeah um so and so i i understand that you have i don't know if you call it you or you together with the dog or just a dog but you've been affiliated with champion level dogs <laughs> <laughs> they're my people they're my people yeah. <laughs> well and you and I, that's why i say i mean I would assume that you get that credit as well, but I don't. I don't know how it works. But but is that accurate? You've won. You've won some of these different competitions that you've entered into. Yeah, yeah. So we've, um, yeah. And I usually say we because I like, you know, the the dog really does does the work. Like I, of course, put in effort, but they're they're really the ones performing. And so I tend to say we. I think of it as a very joint effort. Um, when they title, I consider that their title. I just think mm -hmm. that. You know, it's obviously a testament to my uh, mine and the dog's ability to communicate with one another and understand each other. Um, but mm -hmm. I think that that's something that they earn. And I know some people think of that differently. Like they kind of they kind of tack those up as um, though as being their own achievements. But I think of that as more representative of the dog. But yeah, so I uh, I've never put a a show championship on a dog. So like the ones where they trot around the ring and stuff like that, my dogs mm. have all been out of show champions. So they've all, their parents were all champions. Um, I have not specifically done that. My current dog Dempsey, he's a dual champion. He has a show championship in AKC and UKC, but he mm. earned both of those uh, with his previous um, owner who was one of his co-breeders. And so he achieved those titles before I got him. He basically, I'm like his retirement show home. So he, he finished <laughs> touring around and competing and getting his championships and then um, retired from the show ring and came to me so that we can do sports together. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. I've met Dempsey. He's a, he's a delight. Oh, he's so cute. Uh, <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> um, so uh, this, this is kind of a weird question. And I, uh, so do you, would you ever be interested in like in breeding dogs yourself? And I don't mean as like a, a breeder to sell the dogs and maybe that's just inevitably a part of it, yeah. but just, I mean more like to have your own lineage that you like, does that make sense at all? Like, yeah. Um, oh man, you know, I don't, 
I don't think so. Um, I, I really appreciate and respect what reputable and ethical dog breeders do. And it, and inevitably, you know, as you said, like selling the puppies, that is just a part of that. Um, right. Cause there's just too many. Yeah. I mean, for- they, exactly. And, but most breeders will breed, they breed a litter because they want to keep one of the puppies back to continue mm-hmm. their own lines or several, or, you know, even if they don't keep several of the puppies, they'll, they'll put them in homes with, that they co-own those dogs with, which is a specific kind of registration that they submit to the AKC so that they're, they own the dog with another person. Mm. And that way they have, um, you know, so they basically, they, they continue, they hold breeding rights for those dogs as well, but they don't have to keep so many in their own house. Um, and so I, you know, there, I would be open to maybe that kind of arrangement where I co-own with somebody who is breeding their own lines, but I am just specifically not interested in, uh, the whole process of like the whelping of the litter and screening the puppy homes and like it it's so much work and it's so hard and i mean let's face it it is really really expensive whenever you're breeding dogs ethically um Mm -hmm. because there's all of the health testing involved and ethical breeders also like to title their dogs first to prove you know to have some kind of essentially like evidence that the dog is representative of its breed and and should could be bred and and pass on desirable traits that represent the breed and so there's the expense of a showing and titling the dog and then you have to do all of the health testing and and i do enjoy pouring over pedigrees so the part where they match the dogs up like oh well maybe maybe this stud dog would be a good match for you know this bitch like that stuff is super fun i love digging through pedigrees and and looking at the different combinations and family histories um but basically everything else that comes with it is just so incredibly it just it's so incredibly um it's just an intensive process it's it's financially consuming and emotionally consuming and time consuming and like we're we're getting um a doberman puppy on august Mm -hmm. 3rd she'll be 12 weeks old that week so we're going down to houston texas to pick her up and um I mean, the the litter is a litter of nine. So the breeder right now works a full-time job um, and takes care of her adult dogs and takes care of a litter of nine Doberman puppies. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all like nine weeks. They're going to be 10 weeks old this Wednesday. So I don't. if you've never spent any time around a Doberman puppy, they're, they're adorable monsters. They just bite mm. everything in sight and they're crazy crazy chaos and then they just crash super hard in sleep and then they're back up to being chaos and like i just i can't even imagine and she's lucky like she works the the field that she works in she's able to work from home she's she's some kind of it executive and so so she's able to at least like work from home and be present with the puppies but i mean for a normal person like i don't even know how i would do that like right you know because that's not you can't just you can't just create like nine Doberman puppies under, you know, three months old and just be like, all right, kids, I'll see you in eight hours while mom brings home the bacon. <laughs> like the puppies don't work that way. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, so no, I, I don't think I would be interested in, in me specifically breeding. I'm happy to support good breeders. Um, I know a lot of really good breeders and, uh, and I respect and admire what they do. And I, I love being able to, you know, own their dogs, but I, man, I, I just don't, I don't think so. And I, I have a friend who she has chihuahuas and um, she shows her chihuahuas and she <laughs> thought, okay, well, this is great. She loves the breed. She decided she wanted to breed 
her own and chihuahuas usually have pretty small litters because the the girls are so small that's just the nature of those that breed of dogs and so you might expect like three puppies in a litter of chihuahuas and um but also because they're so small there can be complications and so basically this is a long-winded story to say that my friend ended up spending um a like multiple times over more money to breed a litter of what turned out to be one puppy um, that she kept instead of just going to another breeder who does all of the same, you know, health testing and titling and, um, and just buying one of their puppies. So it, she basically bred like the most expensive dog she's ever going to own. She bred herself. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's wild. (laughs) So it's, it's a huh. labor of love. And I think, you know, and, and there are different kinds of breeders and people, I think a lot of times get confused between like puppy millers and good breeders and what I, you know, what we call sometimes backyard breeders. Um, and, you know, but the, the people that I know and the way that I myself would do it, if I were going to breed a litter, I just, I just think that's a whole giant nope. <laughs> right. Sorry, that's like the yeah. longest answer to get to know. No, no, that was a really good answer. No, you're fine. <laughs> It was interesting. Um, well, and, and what it made me think of is that, and it, this isn't really specific to breeding, but just puppies in general. It's funny because, you know, so as you know, I'm an avid dog person, but don't mm-hmm. own a dog. And, and people are constantly on me about like, why don't you have a dog? You should have a dog. It's crazy. You don't have a dog. And it's, you know, um, whether it's the, uh, I don't know, nicest answer or not, I don't know, but the truth is, is that I just recognize that taking care of a dog, especially a puppy, is a pretty significant time investment. Yeah. And it's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of commitment. And it's like, and not that there's not tremendous reward on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I just, it's not something that I feel like I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in committing to. And I would rather know that now and, and not proceed than get a dog and then be trying to figure out how to, you know, right. rehome it or whatever. And, um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 but I work with people, I work with some people who have new, new babies. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I work with some people who have new puppies and the stories that they tell <laughs> are identical. I mean, I literally have, have worked with people who are, who have new, you know, young puppies or whatever. And they're like, Oh, I was up at 3 a.m. No sleep, no sleep for five months. And it's like, <laughs> you have dogs. Like, right. <laughs> but, but they, you know, and, and of course, you know, they're not doing it in a professional way or something. They're just, right. you know, it's the, a part of their family or whatever. Yeah. So it probably could be better. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's just, it was funny because I'd never, really kid i mean they drop them off at daycare yeah. like they literally do all of the same shit right. that people with real children do yeah well, yeah, well well i would the reason i was interested in that was I, like again i didn't figure that you wanted to be to run a dog breeding business yeah. as much as i just i wondered how again trying <laughs> trying to weave the threads together of like does your research in genetics and and your huge emphasis on that even though it's on plants mm-hmm. does that then maybe because i know you have a very um academic understanding of dogs like you've you've worked really hard to have a really deep and and knowledgeable knowledge base about about dogs as well Mm -hmm. so i didn't know if that was something that that maybe had had been i think on the mind that makes sense yeah yeah and i i think um i mean with dogs it's 
I, in general, like animal breeding and animal genetics, like it, it's something I'm familiar with, obviously, because when you get down to it, like DNA is DNA is DNA. Um, That's what I've always said. <laughs> yeah. So you get it. You get it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. And I, I do have, I do have, uh, you know, fanciful ideas of maybe someday um in old age that i will have my own small private little greenhouse on my property and i would love to you know do plant breeding just for funsies on my own Mm -hmm. and do different crosses but i don't know i've never really had the same interest in doing with animals and i think a large part of it is it's on it's a similar thing as to what you say with you know, why you don't, why you don't own a dog. You love dogs, but you don't own a dog. And for me, if I were going to breed a litter of puppies, then I would be the kind of breeder that is responsible for those puppies for the life of the dog. And Mm. so it, it would be a matter of like, if for any reason somebody could not or would not keep a dog, then I would want that dog to be able to come back to me for rehoming instead of being dumped in a shelter or sold on Craigslist or given away for mm-hmm. free to who knows, you know what I'm saying? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, and to me, that's just to make sure that that dog has a safety net because if I brought them into the world and for some reason they don't, you know, they're losing their home, then they should always have, they just shouldn't, I don't, I don't would never want to contribute to the problem of overcrowding in shelters. And the sad right. fact is that whenever people decide that they are done with an animal, a lot of times they don't, they don't give themselves, they don't admit it early enough on so that they, they take an appropriate amount of time to find a home. A lot of, and that's why dogs end up dumped oftentimes. Um, whether unfortunately, uh, you know, in the area I grew up in, a lot of people would just take dogs out and dump them in the middle of nowhere and just assume that they'd wander around and find a new house. And mm. people do that because by the time they decide that they're done with an animal, like that's it, the dog's got to go. Like, so when I, when Misha and I lived in Springfield, um, I was involved in dog, I was involved in Doberman Rescue. And there's not an official Doberman Rescue in Southwest Missouri, but myself and a few other people who are Doberman lovers and lived in Southwest Missouri, we would network and coordinate with the Doberman Rescues in St. Louis and Kansas City, and sometimes also in um, Iowa and uh, Minnesota and a few other, a few other locations. And sometimes you would literally get a phone call from somebody um, or an email that basically said, Hey, I met this person who, or I, you know, I work with this person who has a Doberman and they've absolutely had it with this dog and the dog has to be gone by seven o'clock tonight or they're going to kill it. Wow. And, and it wouldn't be that the dog had actually, it's not like the dog had attacked anybody or mole, you know, right. It's not a threat. Or no, something. it's that they had had it because the dog chewed up another shoe or, yeah. you know, pooped in the house again like it, it would be all these things that they basically they just got they just had it they were they had been letting annoyance build and it got to a point where essentially all of a sudden just uh, you know out of nowhere they just pick this random time point that the dog has until and that's it and so you get those kinds of calls and emails and you have to like you got to go you don't have time to think about tomorrow because that dog only has until seven o'clock tonight Mm-hmm. And so you just get in your car and you go and you pick them up or you, you know, it's, 
and then they come back and they stay with you for however long until you can transport them into a rescue. And, and so because I, I've seen firsthand, I've seen that stuff happen. I know that that stuff happens. Like I just could never be res- responsible for bringing, you know, puppies into the world without knowing that 100% I was always their safety net. That if somebody mm. hit that situation for any reason where they were like, you know what? The dog's got an hour. So it has to find a home. And really, let's think about how ridiculous it is. How does a dog find a new home by seven o'clock tonight? Like, the dog never finds a new home. It's a dog. No. It it's, it's not like it's making phone exactly. calls. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like, oh shit, I didn't know it was so serious. Let me get on right. Facebook and post that I need a new home. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, it, but people pick these arbitrary deadlines and they just want the animal gone. And, and yeah, yeah, so I, I just, it, yeah, I, I can't, I don't know. And, and so, yeah, the, the kinds of breeders that I do support, they have, they have those safety nets in place where they are the safety net for every puppy that they produce for the life of that puppy. And that's an incredibly admirable, um, expectation. And that's one reason I support good breeders. Because, you know, I know that I could go to a shelter and, and pick out a dog and I'm not opposed to that. And I don't I have zero problems with anyone who adopts from shelters. But um, I also have specific qualities that I'm looking for in dogs. And if I'm insistent on getting a purebred dog, then I go I do my research. I make sure I find a quote unquote good breeder whose ethics match my own. And those are the people that I support. Yeah. Yeah, that make that all that all makes a lot of sense, and uh, that that it it it's like that with uh, with so many things. It's like if you've actually you know something can sound nice when you know very little about it, yeah. <laughs> but once you've kind of seen the inner workings of something, it can give you a, quite a bit of insight or perspective into you know the the challenges or the reason like you just laid out why you you know maybe would right. <laughs> think a bit more about jumping into something like that. Yeah. Um, well, that makes a lot of sense. So changing gears a little bit again. And I, I think I know, I think the answer to these questions is going to be, I don't know. And, that, and that's okay. <laughs> Cause I know you, and I know you don't like, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say you don't like these types of questions. It's just, you don't think about this stuff a lot, okay. but, um, I'll try and do some framing for you. So this is just really just trying to get to know you a little better, uh, outside of, you know, your academics or your work or your, your dog hobby and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, would you say that you are a bigger fan of Seinfeld or The Office? Oh, Seinfeld, Seinfeld, yeah. Okay, I I would tend to agree with that as well, mm-hmm. and I would say that Seinfeld is definitely like in my mind, like it's on like my Mount Rushmore, you know, yeah, of sitcoms right. or whatever. But The Office actually has a lot of really, really, really good content, mm-hmm. and something with Seinfeld that I've actually come to realize is that there's really about like maybe two or three seasons where most of the quotable lines come from. <laughs> like, and sometimes it's all even in the same show. Yeah. Like, um, like the episode with man hands oh, yeah. is, you know, <laughs> yeah. like is also the episode where George is going to the nightclub oh, and showing the right, picture of the his model. dead ex-wife. Yeah, right. Right. And like, I think it's also the episode where Kramer is working the fake job. I might yeah. be conflating that, but I think it is. And if so, then that means it's also the one where Jerry like <laughs> has dinner waiting at 
oh yeah right and, and kramer's late like, getting home and jerry yeah, yeah exactly jerry's like well i've I been sleeping over this well that's the thing with seinfeld is like it's so it's so patchy in its storylines that like you can just kind of like choose your own adventure i think if they just if they just yeah. took all of those different patchy storylines you could like compile your own seinfeld episode no problem that's fair yeah just pick five minutes right. from any episode and mash it yeah. together good enough i yeah, i gotta say i think so i know the the office does a really really good job of portraying kind of the you know mundane qualities of literally working in an office and mm-hmm. the characters are by and large likable even the ones that are kind of unlikable you still like them um, right but i and maybe this is weird to say i actually i think one reason i love seinfeld so much is because i find the characters relatable and not in the the adventures that they have but in their reactions to them like they can be so cynical and snarky and that just really speaks to me (laughs) (laughs) same same you know like yeah have you ever seen the have you ever seen it there's clips of it on youtube but it's it's called celebrities read mean tweets oh i love it oh my god i love it yeah there's one with where julie louis dreyfus elaine reads one and it's like Someone's like, who the fuck is she? She just did Seinfeld, which is a show about <laughs> white people eating pe- pickles and shit. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, Seinfeld is, is yeah, I, I would agree with you, like I said. Um, where would you, what about Curb Your Enthusiasm? Oh, did you watch that I love that much? it. Oh my God. I, on Curb Your Enthusiasm, I, when I started watching that, I was like, holy shit, Larry David is my spirit animal. Like, he is just... <laughs> Like, I, and that, okay, so I mentioned earlier, like, I've got a bit of a filter now as an adult. What's happening in my mind is so often what Larry David puts on Curb Your Enthusiasm, like interacting mm. with people and just the frustration and the complete, like, you just don't even understand what the interaction was. Like, that kind of, I feel like that's, yeah, I, I love Larry David. I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's so, it's so damn good. Yeah, unfortunately, I found that, uh, un- not my spirit animal just instead i just act kind of like larry david and not in the charming ways but like because he's really not charming no well he's not but people find him endearing Mm -hmm. but maybe that's just because you're watching it on the show because people in the show don't find him endearing no Um, i think that people find him if people find him endearing it's because they think that he's playing a character i think that's actually larry david and that's why he's my spirit animal because it's like i feel you brother (laughs) i get it so i think that I've gone a long way in like learning tact and like controlling my, yeah. you know, what I say, but that is consistently proven to not be true. Right. Um, yeah. because I, I, it's a lot of times where I say something very inappropriate right in front of a person who I shouldn't have said it in front of yeah. and not intentionally. <laughs> um, I mean, I meant to say it, but I didn't, I didn't right. know that they were in the audience still kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, it's uh No, that's yeah, that's a I I have those moments too where um and it tends to be whenever I'm kind of thinking about something else and then I'm presented with a situation that I forget that my filter is like sitting next to me instead of active and something just mm. rockets out of my mouth and people look at mm. me and I'm like, "Oh, that was wrong. That was wrong. That shouldn't have that shouldn't have been said." We were downtown one time and there was a guy, it was a little group of us and there was a guy that we'd gone to high school with that that saw us and um 
I don't actually, there's not actually a problem with the guy. Like we didn't, there's not some longstanding feud or he never really wronged me in any way. Yeah. I don't really care for the guy, but it, it doesn't matter. Um, however, upon seeing him and him seeing us, he like sticks his hand out and is like, Hey, what's up guys? You know, and a couple of people like fist bump him or slap his hand or whatever he's looking for. Yeah. And I do not. And I just continue walking <laughs> and, uh, we get past him and I'm like, who the fuck is that guy? Get your fucking hand out of my face, dog. Like, if I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to talk to you. You should know about that. And then the person with me goes, he's definitely right behind us still. Oh, my and God. And I go, really? And I turned around, and no shit, he was in lockstep behind us because he was going to the same bar that Oh, we were. perfect. Let's all hang. Uh, yeah, well, and at first, it's like the thing, the thing that you realize in those moments is like it's embarrassing, but at least now we don't have to – Pretend it like yeah. now we don't have to hang out. Whereas if I wouldn't have said that out loud, we probably would have had to make more small talk. But after that, there was no chance that we were going to yeah, right. endure small talk. Right. Um, Freedom. I realize that I'm still the asshole in that situation, though. And I didn't mean to. <laughs> now I feel bad for having been that mean <laughs> to that guy because he doesn't deserve it. But uh, yeah, whatever. That's it who happens. I, am, I guess. Um, so what about. Um, and this doesn't have to just be movies. It could be, I, I know I know you and Misha watch, sometimes watch movies, but sometimes do like TV shows. Mm-hmm. What would you say, and it doesn't have to be your favorite because that's a loaded question, but what's uh, a movie or TV show that you really enjoyed that you watched recently? Oh, Dark. 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 Yeah. Oh. oh, man. Misha told me about that. Ooh. I haven't watched it, but. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I, it's, uh, it's one of the best shows I think I've ever seen. Like it, it just. It just knocks some shit out of the park. <laughs> hmm. And it's a kind of a sci-fi. Yeah, thing, it's a right? sci-fi like... thriller, and so um, it kind of it starts off by I won't I won't give any spoilers, although I think that's the other person's responsibility if they're listening to this and they don't want spoilers, but I won't give any. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it kind of starts off by leading you down this um, this expected path of oh children are disappearing oh you know kids are showing up dead. Um, and I don't, I just realized I said that in a tone that makes it sound like I'm being like, I'm not <laughs> dead, kid, oh my dead God, kids are bad. Just, you know, put me yeah. on the record of saying dead kids are bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's get that out there. We'll use that clip to promote this. Oh, episode, good. So. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it starts off with that and you kind of think, oh, it's going to be one of these kind of like thriller type crime shows, basically. And it just uh, it just takes you on a journey of nope after that. It's not that at all. I mean, yes, okay, some kids have died, but it is not at all what you think. Um, there, there are time travel elements, and uh, I mean, it's just, it's so incredibly fantastic. And it's literally, it, the storyline is so, um, so beautifully and intricately woven that there were times where I would pause it and I would I would want to discuss what we had just seen with Misha to make mm. sure that mm-hmm. I had not you know perceived something that wasn't there to make sure that I was tracking because it's they don't they don't assume their audience is stupid basically they aren't mm. like they aren't you know right or spelling things out for you and holding your hands like they're just putting it in front of you and basically ask you know just expecting you to keep up. And it's it's absolutely amazing. We just finished season two of it um, like a week ago, and I genuinely, the day after we finished it, because we tend to watch it at bedtime, like right before we go to sleep, and so 
the the next morning, like I was um, as I was heading home from work, I felt a little sad because there wasn't another episode of Dark to watch that night. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. I get that. Well, I'll have to check it out. Oh, that was amazing. Um, so the final thing I usually ask you about it would be music, and I want to ask you what your favorite musical act is. Instead, mm-hmm. I will ask you since you went with mm-hmm. me, or um, well, not just with me, but the group of us, mm-hmm. um, to the Tool concert. Yeah. Uh, you did you enjoy the tool concert it was great it was it's tied for my um favorite uh for my favorite live performance yeah it it was fantastic yeah i i was absolutely blown away by it um it was i mean i've been to four shows now and that was i would say the best one i've i've seen of the four Mm -hmm. um it was just it was such a great experience i i yeah i don't know i (laughs) it's it's literally indescribable because any attempt to explain it to someone that hasn't hasn't been or that you know wasn't there or whatever, it just it, it's not possible to do it justice. Really, yeah. it just sounds underwhelming for how awesome it truly was. Yeah. Um, well, it was great because it was, cause it was my first time seeing them. But you know, I mean, I, I've been listening to Tool since the '90s. Like, mm-hmm. so it, I, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with all of their music, but I had, I had never seen them live, and so that was kind of its own special little treat. Like. To just you know, yeah. to hear all of the music live was just absolutely fantastic. And of course, they put on a, an amazing show. The the visuals and I mean, mm-hmm. it's just absolutely stunning. And and in general, just the presence of the different members of the band on stage itself is kind of its own interesting. Like they have this like layered effect, as though like mm-hmm. as the show progresses, things sort of come into focus, and so you see these different layers. And so the the whole thing was just. Like it was just a, a beautiful um, show and amazing, you know, excellent legendary music, and it was it was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the buddies that went with us, he's gone to a lot of festivals, but he had never really been to a concert in a an arena like that. Mm-hmm. And when we first got there, he was kind of skeptical, and then uh, after I don't know, maybe two songs or so, he was like, "Okay, I get it." <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah. told you it was crazy, but I told you I couldn't really explain it to you either. So yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, especially in the midst of your your busy work schedule, to yeah. to join the show today and talk to us, explain your your degree and your academic process, uh, the hobby with the dogs and all that. All really interesting stuff. Uh, and I've had an absolute blast talking with you. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about or to cover or anything? I'd like to get into God. No, I'm okay. kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, fair enough. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for joining, Bridget. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks.
Well, that is going to do it for today's show. Thank you again so much, Bridget, for joining the show and talking about all this stuff. It was a really fascinating conversation. As always, you guys are welcome to email me any questions or thoughts you might have at walker at the walk show podcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook at The Walk Show, Twitter at The Walk Show Pod, Instagram, The Walk Show Podcast. Uh, always check out the website, uh, thewalkshowpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Have a good one.